church, please open up to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. We're going to continue in our series this morning out of 1 Corinthians, going through the letter. As you turn there, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, I'll ask you a question. Have you ever read a book or an article that just outright challenged what you believed? could be about the world in general. It could be about something specific. But you read this and you thought, you know, that this is, it's not a challenge in that it just disagrees with you. It's a challenge in that it forces you to stop and say, oh, wait a minute. What do I really believe about this? I can remember the first book that did that for me. And it wasn't this book. It was a book called How to Lie with Statistics. I had to read it in, I think it was 11th grade English. I've never forgotten it since. I can remember what it was like to simply take statistics at face value, to hear a number and think, okay. I can remember reading the book and then the change that happened in me and that now every time I see a statistic, I think, okay, but how could they have manipulated that? Is that really accurate? It forced me to look at everything in a totally new way. I still today feel the effects of that book upon me. I'm different because of it. Now, the Bible is similar. This is a challenging book to believe, isn't it? Maybe you're a non-believer in here, and you are affirming with me radically. Yes, it is. Maybe you're a Christian in here, and you know, well, I'm supposed to believe everything in there. But yes, parts of this are hard to believe. That creation was simply spoken into existence. The parting of the Red Sea, Daniel in the lion's den, Jonah and the fish, Jesus walking on water, the resurrection of the dead, the end times. We read these and our belief is challenged. I can remember what it feels like for my belief in the Bible to be challenged. I did not grow up in church. I know very well what this feels like. I can remember what it feels like for belief in the Bible to go from acknowledgement to conviction. One pastor has described it this way. Belief is when you hold on to a truth. Conviction is when that truth grabs a hold of you. The Bible challenges our beliefs. And what we believe has power over us. As we accept it, we move from merely holding on to it into the realm of it holding on to us. So here's my main idea for us this morning. We are what we believe. We are what we believe. So to follow Jesus, we must believe Jesus. And this belief we'll see is more than just an acknowledgement of, but it is a being taken hold by Jesus. We're continuing the ninth topic out of about ten in Paul's letter. The resurrection takes up all of chapter 15. Last week, Paul addressed the most important topic in the church to set up this whole discussion, and that's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. When he did so, 
he drew out the resurrection appearances of Christ, spending a lot of time hitting on those, and he did it for a reason. That's what we're going to see this morning today in our passage. So hopefully you're at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. I'm going to invite you to stand now for the reading of God's Word. And remember, as we read, we are not merely hearing words from a page, but we are hearing the Word of God speak to us. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, well, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. 
There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven." I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you please illuminate and shine into our hearts, that we might see and behold the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. In chapter 15, Paul is addressing a single topic, bodily resurrection, and he's doing so for a reason. To see what it is, look at a couple of verses with me. First, verse 58, which we just read. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now I want you to back up slightly and look at verses 33 through 34. It says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is by far the longest chapter in the whole letter. 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians, it is more than double the length of most of the chapters. Not all of them, but most of them. And in this, in this entire chapter, we only have two sets of instructions. I just read both of them. In the whole chapter, 
two sets of instructions. Paul's concern here aligns with his concern throughout the entire level, the, the entire letter. The Corinthians bear the name of Christ in theory, but they are living contrary to faith in Christ in a number of ways. There is a disconnect between what they are proclaiming and then what they are practicing. And Paul is going to show them that way, that gap by driving a wedge into it and prying it open for them to see. In chapter 15, Paul makes the disconnect obvious by addressing a dangerous false teaching taking root in the church. You can see it here in verse 12. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? The resurrection of the dead is a doctrine of Christianity. That is, it is a statement of what the Bible teaches on a certain topic. That's what doctrine is. By definition, a doctrine isn't something you do, it's something you believe, you have come to accept. Now that doesn't mean that doctrine has no effect on what we do, on how we behave. In fact, the opposite is true, vitally so. And this is exactly why Paul is making his point the way he does. In our text this morning, we're going to see three things. The consequences of our belief, obstacles to right belief, and the result of right belief. Consequences of our belief, obstacles to right belief, and the result of right belief. Let's look at the first, the consequences of belief. Look in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You can almost feel the shock in what Paul is asking here. How can you believe this? He just can't believe they would fall victim to something like this. Why not? Because there are necessary consequences to that belief. That doctrine of the resurrection, just like most other Christian doctrines, bears on every other belief in our system. We can't just reject one belief without it affecting a multitude of other beliefs. He goes on, if there's no resurrection from the dead, verse 13, then not even Jesus has been raised. Which means, verse 14, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 15, we're slandering God. Verse 17, our faith is pointless. Our sins are not forgiven. Verse 18, death is the end and your loved ones who have passed away are gone. If there is no resurrection of the dead. These are all negative consequences for denying that doctrine. If it's not true, here's what you have to admit. Now, you may not want to. You're allowed to be inconsistent in your belief, but that's foolish. And then he continues, since Jesus has been raised from the dead, verse 20, death is not the end. Verses 21 through 28, the fall and its curses are all being reversed. As in Adam, these things are true. Now in Christ, these things are becoming true. Jesus' present reign and future reign over us is being finalized. Though the kingdom of heaven is here now, there is a future kingdom after death. And that kingdom is being passed along in secession, and it will culminate after the resurrection. 
verses 29 through 32. Our actions in this present life, our suffering, it all means something. Now, though Paul is expounding here upon belief in the resurrection, almost every Christian belief that we hold applies in this way. They all have consequences. Whether we choose to accept that belief, that has consequences. And then whether we choose to deny that belief, that also has consequences. But we usually don't think about consequences when we accept or reject a belief. We think about immediate results, something that it gives me now not thinking how it relates to everything else we believe. In our passage today, let me point out three specific consequences of what we choose to believe. Number one, our beliefs affect our view of God. How we view God is a consequence of what we choose to believe. Verse 15, he says, We are even found to be misrepresenting God. For we said that he raised Christ, but if the dead aren't raised, then he didn't raise Christ. And so we have misrepresented God. Every, any and every false belief misrepresents God because God is a God of truth. He delights in truth. He is truth. There is no falsehood in God. So any false belief is a dishonor to him. But more importantly, I think for our case... That false belief affects how we think about God. It doesn't change God. It changes how we view God. Because of our false belief, we may believe something untrue about God. Let me give you an example. Take the belief that God will grant each and every prayer we pray so long as we genuinely believe He will do it. If we have genuine faith, God will do it. This belief sounds good because of passages like these. Ask for anything in my name and it'll be done. You'll say to this mountain, move and it'll be thrown into the sea. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. This belief is used by many today to control people and to manipulate people. Oh, you didn't get what you asked for for God? It's because your faith isn't strong enough. How do I know your faith isn't strong enough? You're not giving enough money to the church. If you really believed, you would put your money where your mouth is. It is a tool to manipulate people. It's a misinterpretation and misapplication of God's word, but many believe it. But think about for a moment, what are the consequences of such a view? You have to conclude that God simply exists in heaven to be a genie for us, to make us happy. It couldn't be that God doesn't answer our prayers because he knows that what we're asking for isn't actually good for us. That can't be the case. You have to conclude that God is constantly displeased with us because we just simply cannot maintain that high level of faith. We slowly begin to believe things about God that aren't actually true, and if you ask us about those things specifically, we don't really believe it, but I believe this, and so logically, I have to believe that if I want to be consistent. It's like a set of dominoes, and one falls and hits another, and then it hits another and another, and before we know it, as we try to bear God's image, we begin to live out a false view of God in our lives. And this leads to a second consequence of belief. Our belief 
Our beliefs affect our view of self and others. It affects our view of self and others. The Corinthians' false belief affected how they viewed Paul and his preaching. It says in verse 14, our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We've misrepresented God. He says further down here in verse 18, all of those people that we know who have fallen asleep, they have perished. They do not exist anymore. They never will again if there is no resurrection of the dead. If death is really the end, there is no hope for us or for anyone. Our hope is in this life only. And as Paul puts, puts it in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Think about one of the most basic beliefs, doctrines of Christianity, man's depravity. It's the doctrine that we are completely lost in sin. Rebellion against God. This doctrine has monumental consequences for how we view ourselves and how we view other people. I have to fundamentally view myself at the center of my being as a sinner. I am always opposed to the will of God in my life if I am left to my own devices. This is hard for me to accept, but it is true. To believe this doctrine is to recognize that we are all sinners at the most fundamental level. Humanity is essentially bad, not essentially good. Left to our own, we tend toward chaos and disorder. It is this belief that beckons us to turn to Jesus. Because we recognize we have no other choice. As Peter confirmed in John, where else are we going to go, Lord, in chapter 6? Where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have nowhere else to turn. It is only because we believe that we are hopelessly lost apart from Christ that we turn to him to be saved. We will not turn to Jesus as our spiritual doctor if we believe that we can already be healthy apart from him. But now imagine the consequence of denying this doctrine. All people are basically good. Well, we must ask the question then, why do we see so much bad in the world? Well, now we've got a problem. What's the answer? Some conclude, well, the problem is systemic. It's the structure of our government or our society, and it's manipulating people and corrupting them. If it wasn't for that, we would all be basically good. So what is their conclusion? Tear down the system. Maybe the problem is political. We simply have the wrong leader. If we had the right politician in there, well, then all of our basic goodness could come out and flourish, and we would have utopia. It's a pipe dream. Do you see how a single belief can affect how you view the entire world around you and everyone in it? But we don't think of belief like that. We don't think logically through how one belief affects a whole web of beliefs. But it's important. Here's the third consequence of belief. Our beliefs affect our view of the gospel. Paul takes belief in the resurrection. You see it here in verse 20, and he picks the theme back up further down in verse 40. He takes it all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is a reversal of the fall. 
It is a new creation. There's an old creation, there's a corruption in Adam, and now there's this new creation taking place in Christ. So after looking back into the past, then Paul looks into the future at the coming kingdom and what the gospel is accomplishing for us. And then he snaps right back into the present, and he looks at the present suffering being endured. He says here in verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? He says, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not, are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Basically, my suffering now is pointless. Which means that the gospel does not exist for some future purpose or because of some past purpose. It's all about life right here right now. And again, that is not true either. The beliefs that we, that we hold affect how we think about our lives in the here and now and what it means to believe and live out the gospel in light of what is to come. It affects me here and now in light of what is to come. Paul quotes here in verse 32, Isaiah twenty-two thirteen. Israel is about to be overrun. Israel is constantly not turning back to the Lord. So God sends this foreign nation to come in and take them captive. And there's this oppression over and over. And his hope is that Israel will stop and turn from her sin to God and say, Okay, God, we broke the covenant. We, we want to turn back to you. We are sorry for our sin. That's the hope. But in Isaiah 22, 13, God expects them to stop, confess their sin, and repent and weep. But instead, what they do is they just build up their forces and say, okay, it's coming. We can't do anything. Let's just have one more final night of eating and drinking and being merry before we're destroyed. They should have turned back to God, but they didn't. They said, let's just live it up while we still can. We still have one more day. Paul is saying because of this belief, this false belief, it's as though the gospel really only has relevance in this life. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is a promise of a new life that begins now and reaches its culmination after the resurrection. In the here and now, I am experiencing a foretaste of what is to come. And that foretaste spurs me on to live out the truth of the gospel daily. My hope is not in this present life, it's in a future life. This is why we are willing to give our money to things. This is why we're willing to go to the store and buy a hundred boxes of color pencils or whatever it is we're going to give up to serve people. Because the things here don't matter. This building is beautiful, but guess what? It will not be here forever. There's going to be a day when it's not here anymore. In the grand scheme of eternity, it's pointless. The thing that lasts is what the gospel does through the work that takes place here. That's what lasts. That's the truth of the gospel. We'll often tell others, come to Jesus. He'll save your marriage. He'll fix your family problems. He'll stabilize your finances. 
That belief corrupts the gospel into some sort of self-help fantasy. Because guess what? Sometimes you come to Jesus and your marriage is still hard. But God sustains you through the power of Christ to reflect the gospel in your tough situation. Sometimes you come to Jesus and your finances spiral out of control. And you think, God, what am I going to do now? And he sustains you and tells you, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. If these are the reasons we turn to Jesus, we miss the gospel completely. The reason that we need Jesus is because our sin has stored up wrath against us from God. And unless we turn to Jesus to be forgiven of our sin and rescued for it, we will be judged by God for our sin, for eternity in hell, paying for our rebellion. That's why we need Jesus. What we believe or don't believe, even if it is slightly off, can sometimes have drastic consequences including on the gospel. So those are the consequences of belief. Now let me share with you the enemies of belief. Look down here in verse 33. Paul says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And he continues with his instruction. Do not be deceived. Many times, wrong belief is the result of deception. Deception by who? Deception by the very one that hates God. The enemy, that great serpent in Genesis chapter 3, Satan. Satan has been doing this since the very beginning. Did God really say? Are you sure you really believe that? And Paul notices in verse 12, it says, Some of you say, in verse 33, there's bad company that is corrupting good morals, as he gives this quote here. In verse 34, there are some who have no knowledge of God. Simply put, there are obstacles in play that are deterring you from... And we have two specific examples here. The first enemy of belief here is worldly attraction. Worldly attraction opposes right belief. When Paul quotes Isaiah 22 about eating and getting drunk to make the point that denying the resurrection would wreak havoc on people's moral lives. They would live it up not knowing that this life is not all there is. They would think, oh, I'm going to die and it's going to be done anyway, so I might as well just give in to my desires now. Isn't this what we're seeing today? In a country where belief in God is decreasing it doesn't even matter if that belief was genuine. Just that it might be true that there will be a judgment one day keeps our morals in check. But when you eliminate that, everything, everything goes. The Bible has an explanation for this. The reason that we sin like this is because we desire it. Over and over again, these phrases pop up. Worldly desire, desires of the flesh, passions of the flesh, the pride of life. We desire sin. Well, interestingly, Paul continues the imagery from Isaiah. He gives this phrase in the ESV, wake up from your drunken stupor. He says, wake up 
Stop sinning. This phrase, wake up from your drunken stupor, translates a single word from the Greek, and it means this, sober up. Get sober. They're not drunk on wine like Isaiah was kind of talking about, this just absolute unhindered giving me what I want and becoming drunk. That's not what it is. They are under the influence spiritually, and it is leading them into sin. And because they are under the influence of these sinful attractions, they can't think straight. They think they're walking a straight line, but what we see is something totally different. When I was in school, they had these goggles that they give you, and it's supposed to kind of replicate what it's like to be drunk. It's not completely accurate, I don't think, because half the students could put it on, and they would kind of walk the line. But every now and then, you get a student to put it on, and you would see them just walking, and then they just kind of go off this way and just walk, and they couldn't, they couldn't keep it straight. Now, in their mind, what they're seeing, I'm walking on the line. But it's obvious to everyone else, no, you're not. You are under an influence, and you don't understand. When a cop pulls someone over who is just completely wasted, and he asks them to walk a straight line, they cannot do it. Now, you know what I bet these cops have never seen? For a drunkard to be pulled out of his car and say, hey, walk the straight line, and for him to just snap out of it and say, oh, sorry, yeah, I'll do it now, and just, and just walk it. No instruction will ever take away that influence. He has to sober up first. He's going to continue to act that way until it is out of his system. And guess what? That won't become a regular reality until you cut off the source. If we keep returning to these same habits and attractions that threaten our spiritual lives with intoxication, we're going to continue to fall short. There are certain worldly attractions that we turn to again and again, not realizing that these are obstacles. They are enemies of belief, and they are influencing us away from Christ. The reason that we continue to turn to them simply put, is because we are more attracted to those things than Jesus. It has robbed our affection for Christ. I simply, in that moment, I believe this is going to satisfy me more than Jesus. My obedience to Christ is not going to satisfy me like this will. It is deception. It's a lie. Hebrews 12, 11.25 reminds us that the pleasure of sin is only for a season. It's kind of like a high. It goes away. And when it does, like Proverbs 26.11 says, we return to it like a dog does to its vomit, hoping to have that satisfaction again because it cannot satisfy. It's a temporary effect. And in the same way, we must not sit in judgment over God's Word, allowing our desires to influence what we believe about what this book says. This leads to that second opponent of right belief, and that is worldly thinking. Worldly thinking opposes right belief. Only belief in the gospel can free us from the intoxicating mentality of the world. It will sober our minds so that our thinking is snapped into place. But when we revert back to those things, we shouldn't be surprised when our thinking begins to become warped again. 
that can happen as a Christian, where I'm returning to these influences that corrupt the way that I think. Paul anticipates how some of the Corinthians might respond at this point. He says in verse 35, Well, someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You can imagine this person thinking he's an intellectual and saying, Well, answer me this. What about the person who, who has died by burning and their body no longer exists? Tell me, Paul, how's that person going to be raised from the dead? You can almost see their pride and their ability to reason it out. But their thinking It is a way of thinking, but it's wrong. Paul is a little more pointed in verse 36. You foolish person. And Paul argues that a future life requires the ending of a first. And he makes his point by the analogy of a seed. This seed, when it goes into the ground, it dies, and then it produces something else. You don't really want the seed. You want what the seed produces. The seed is irrelevant. It's just a means to something greater. The original form, the seed, is not what you ultimately want. And then he couples it with this conversation about glories of different forms. There's these earthly bodies and heavenly bodies, and they each have their own different glory of one kind and another. Here's Paul's point. Our earthly bodies now are good, but the future heavenly bodies are what we really want. I'm in the image of God now, but it's marred. The image of God in the future is what I'm hoping for. I'm looking forward to that day when I have a body that's free from sin. That means I have to get rid of this one first. I have to get rid of this one first. So their logic is flawed. Our current bodies are simply a seed. Now, it's possible that the Corinthians were persuaded by this logic because of their attachment to the present age. The truth is they liked the seed. I like the way things are now. And that distorts our thinking. Here's the final point this morning. We see the consequences of belief. We see the enemy of belief, obstacles of belief. Now we see... Number three, the result of belief. The results of belief. Paul concludes his discussion with a wonderful picture of heaven. The resurrection, in the resurrection we receive a new body and it marks our entry into heaven when all Christians will be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, there is this transformation that takes place. And we will no longer feel the stain of sin. We will no longer feel the weight of the world's attractions. We'll no longer feel the persuasion of worldly thinking. We will put on the imperishable, something that can never erode or become corrupted. We will put on immortality. Death will be no more. And we will finally be completely free from sin, walking with Jesus for eternity. Isn't that such a wonderful result? But that's not the last thing Paul says. After this whole glorious picture of what's going to happen, he says it's a mystery and it's wonderful. And at the very end of that description, in verse 58, here's what he says. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
Now, did you catch that relationship? Why do we follow these instructions? Because our labor is not in vain. Paul ties that to the resurrection. There's a future life. So your work now is not in vain. It's pointing to if the resurrection doesn't happen, then yeah, you know what? This is all pointless. (laughs) Do what you want. Eat, drink, and be merry. But it's not in vain. It's only because of that proper belief that our perspective now is readjusted and that we are motivated to labor in Christ. Our labor is not in vain because there is a life to come. Right belief fuels Christian labor. And I'm going to give you three ways that it does that and will be done. The first way that right belief fuels Christian labor is it fuels God's image in us. That is a result of right belief. Because I am understanding the Lord rightly, it is now gripping my heart. I am being transformed into the image of Christ. In verse 49, Paul points forward to this day. I'm going to back up to 48. He says, As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, that's Jesus, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is what we are being transformed to. And it's not just a future state. It's a present reality for the Christian. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. There's a former degree of glory that we have now, but it's in anticipation of a future form of glory that we are currently being transformed into. How does that happen? We behold the beauty of Christ in the gospel. The belief in the gospel is changing the way that we act and think and live. Right before this verse, in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul points out how the Jews, they read the Old Testament Scripture, but there's a spiritual veil that keeps them from seeing the glory of Christ. Put simply, they don't believe it. They don't believe it. There's a veil keeping them from believing and seeing it. But when one turns to Jesus, the veil is lifted... And we behold Jesus in all of his splendor, and we embrace him and delight in him. We begin to be transformed by him into his image. As Romans 12, 2 suggests, we are transformed as our minds are renewed. Right belief fuels God's image in us. Here's the second result of belief. Right belief fuels our hope. Right belief fuels our hope. As Paul points out regarding the resurrection, death will be no more. Sin will be no more. Death here is not the end. My loved ones who have trusted Christ, I have hope. They have not perished. When I pass, my family has hope. I have not perished. As I look forward to my future passing, I have hope because I will not perish. Hope. This world is not all there is, and that is the message of the gospel. Jesus is making a new heavens and a new earth, and this world will be like a bad dream in light of eternity. Here's the final result. Right belief fuels us to follow 
Jesus. For the Christian we see here, we remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. It isn't so that our labor will be in vain, will not be in vain. It's not so that. It's because our labor is not in vain. Our work means something. It means something. It means something even if you're forgiven of your sin. It means something if you walk closely to Christ or you do not. It means something. And it's not just a future meaning. It's a present meaning as well. It means something for our work. It means something for our families. It means something for our witness. It means something for our church. If you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian, I hope you feel welcomed. I hope that you've been encouraged from the truth of God's Word. But you are being confronted with a call this morning to believe a truth. It's the truth that Jesus Christ has lived, died, and been risen from the dead to save us from our present corruption, to save us from the wrath of God so that we might one day dwell with him free from sin for eternity. Whether you accept that belief or not has amazingly severe consequences. There is a worldly attraction that you may feel deep in your bones and a worldly persuasion that is convincing you that this isn't really what you want. But the Holy Spirit of God right now is pricking your heart, telling you it may not be what you want in your flesh, but you know in your bones this is what you need. I hope it fuels you to follow Jesus. The one who trusts Jesus, every sinner who turns to him from their sin and trusts him will be saved. To the Christian, may our right belief fuel us to follow Jesus daily. May we not just believe the gospel day one and then not live as though the gospel has affected us, but may we live out the gospel daily. What is this right belief that will make us into the image of Christ and fill us with hope and fuel us to follow Jesus? It's belief in the message of the Bible, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything we believe about this book has bearing on our walk as a Christian. So I invite you today to believe it, not merely to hold on to it. Let it hold on to you as a deep conviction of the soul and stir you to follow Christ. Church, we are what we believe. What we believe matters. It shapes us. So as you read your Bibles every day, and I hope you do, I hope not as a chore, not as something that must be done, but because you know there is a future hope one day. My work is not in vain, and I believe what this book says, so I must be transformed by it. As you go to your Bibles every day, may you allow it to correct your faulty belief. May you accept it as the word of God and believe it. 
resist the worldly attraction and worldly thinking that allures you away from Christ. And let this fuel you to be transformed into his image as you are filled with hope and follow Jesus in faith. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, even though there are times that we come to your word and our former way of life calls to us and beckons us, Lord, we are convinced by these faulty ways of thinking as the enemy of belief, our flesh, as your enemy, Satan, tries to convince us that the word is not true, that we ought not to believe it. Lord, would you strengthen us to believe, to hold dearly that we might be held by the gospel. Lord, we know that what we believe will change how we view you, how we view ourselves and others, how we view the gospel. And we know that it will make us into your image, filling us with hope and enabling us to follow you immovable, steadfast, abounding in the work of the Lord. So please, Lord, stir our belief this morning and every day after. In Jesus' name, amen.